getting a Japanese girlfriend might not help your Japanese, but knowing Japanese might help you get a Japanese girlfriend. So it, there you go. <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to the Kurakara podcast. In this episode, we have a super special guest, Matt, behind the Matt vs. Japan YouTube channel. If you don't know who he is, he's one of the most fluent foreign speakers of Japanese on the internet. And he has a YouTube channel and company dedicated to helping people reach the highest levels in languages. On his channel, he mostly talks about different techniques to learn languages. But in this episode, we're going to be trying to learn more about who he is as a person. If this is your first time listening to the Kodakara podcast, my name is Eric, and I'm joined by my co-host Raza. And on this show, we talk about our experience living in Japan, and we interview different people who have a relationship with Japan, such as salarymen, ALTs, JETs, language learners, and more. With Matt versus Japan, we talk about why he hasn't moved to Japan yet, his love-hate relationship with Japan and Japanese, his ambitions for his YouTube channel and potentially Japanese media, as well as funny stories from when he was still going to college and studying Japanese. We're going to be splitting the podcast into two parts, so make sure to like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell to catch part two of the podcast. In part one, we talk a lot about Japan, Japanese, Japanese people, and his efforts in studying languages, whereas in part two, we talk a lot about the mass immersion approach and where he wants to take with his company and team. So I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome back to the Kodakara Podcast, where we dive deep into different aspects of Japan with people who know what they're actually talking about. I'm your host, Raza, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Eric. Today, we're lucky enough to be joined by a very special guest, the man fighting against Japan himself, Matt versus Japan. Yeah, so Matt is behind the Matt versus Japan YouTube channel and co-founder of the Massive Immersion Approach. His channel and company is dedicated to helping people reach the highest levels of foreign language fluency with his personal journey, starting with Japanese. And for me personally, I have used his method to study Japanese, and I found it to be extremely useful and practical. So I definitely recommend anyone interested in learning Japanese or taking any language to the next level to check out his YouTube channel. And one difference between Matt's method of learning languages versus other methods that you might find on the internet is that, first, all the principles and techniques are completely free, and two, he also has the results to back it up. To this day, he's one of the most fluent foreign speakers of Japanese that I can find on the internet, which is confirmed by many Japanese natives. And to top it all off, he studied Japanese almost entirely within the United States. And on his channel, he describes the different techniques you can use to take your language ability to the next level. But today, we're hoping to get a closer look behind who the man is himself. So Matt, can you give us a short background behind your history with Japanese and where you are today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on. It's an honor. And I'll also say that, unfortunately, due to you know, some complicated circumstances, I didn't get that much sleep last night. So sorry if I'm uh, not as, like, not the sharpest tack today, but I'll, I'm going to try my best. But anyway, so yeah, let's see. I very first got interested in Japanese when I was a freshman in high school. And for the first two years, I had no idea what I was doing. Just took Japanese classes at my high school and uh, didn't learn that much. And then I stumbled across the All Japanese All the Time website in 2011, I think. And, you know, this was basically a website that introduced the fun, you know, the main ideas of immersion learning combined with using a spaced repetition system to bolster your learning. And yeah, I tried to execute the method that was uh, explained in the website as best I could. And I started dedicating pretty much my entire life to uh, learning Japanese and uh, continued that all Japanese all the time lifestyle for about five years. And... It's been about three years since I shifted from that kind of all Japanese all the time, very intensive Japanese study sort of lifestyle to a more relaxed, 
lifestyle where I'm more kind of in maintenance mode with my Japanese. And I mean, now I'm also, you know, running the mass immersion approach, which is, you know, this uh, kind of business we're trying to get off the ground related to helping people in languages and, you know, making my YouTube channel content, things like that. So, uh, yeah, for those five years where I was studying Japanese really intensively, six months of those I spent in Japan. But besides that, I was in the United States the entire time. And that six-month period in Japan was right towards the beginning. And so when I got back from Japan, I still completely sucked at Japanese. And it was really studying at home in Oregon uh, for you know many hours in my room that I pretty much got fluent in Japanese. And when I went to college for the latter two years of my initial five-year intensive period, um, yeah, I was at a college where there was a lot of Japanese foreign exchange students. And so I was able to get a lot of Japanese practice there. So that helped. And yeah, I think maybe over the last couple, three years, I've, I've, I've improved in some ways, probably even gotten worse in other ways. So, you know, that's, that's maintenance mode for you, I guess. But yeah. I see. So is there something about Oregon specifically that has kept you here all these years, even after you've uh, reached fluency Japanese? Cause I also know you're working uh, remotely with your co-founder as well. Yeah, I mean, well, it's kind of just the default for me, really, because I've lived in Portland, Oregon, ever since I was one year one year old. Uh, and yeah, I mean, for the for the bulk of my time learning Japanese, I always thought that I wanted to go to Japan. But you know, at, at first I was finishing high school, and then you know I was I was going to you know community college for a period of time and then i you know i was going to four-year college so it, there was no easy way for me to go over to japan you know because i was still a student and things like that and for the past three years i mean i've kind of just really had my hands full like learning how to run a, a business essentially and so i guess because of that i just you know as a default continue to stay in portland oregon and you know also <laughs> i moved out of my parents house uh, a little over six months ago and I've just been living on my own now. So I really feel like I'm just like first, I'm still in the process of learning how to be an adult, essentially, like, you know, figuring out how to pay my taxes and, you know, balance my budget and go shopping for myself and all these things. And so it, it kind of feels like even though I've lived in Oregon forever, I'm still having this new experience of being an adult for the first time. And so it kind of feels like if I had that plus living in Japan at the same time, that would have been a little rough. I mean, actually, who knows? It would have been an adventure too. I'm sure that would have been fine actually, but I don't know. I guess just, just the way my life happened to play out, it was kind of just the default. I never really decided I want to stay in Oregon or anything like that. Do you find a lot of like, like-minded people in Oregon specifically, or do you mostly interact with um, like peers online? I mean, I definitely have a good number of, of like real life friends that I actually met online. So I mean, oh, they just happen to be living in well, Oregon. no, like, you know, there's this like website meetup dot uh, meetup dot com where oh, you can basically meet like minded people that are living in your same local area. And so, like, I have a group of meditation friends that I that we I mean, we made our own meetup group. So then we ended up meeting more people through that. But we had, actually we initially re- met on Reddit because there was this subreddit for a meditation manual that we liked. And someone posted like, hey, anyone in Portland want to meet up? And that's kind of like how, how I met them. And so, yeah, I mean, honestly, like if I was going to go just have a conversation with, with a random person on the street, I don't think we would be very like-minded. So still, I think like like-minded people are a minority. I think 
even though they're a minority, they might be still a larger percentage of the people than if I was in like Alabama or something like I, I think that's true. But then again, I've lived in Oregon my whole life, so I don't really have anything to compare it to. But there's probably a lot of people like studying Japanese in Oregon, right? Because I like for the the school that me and Raza study abroad at, there were, I mean, it was like a sister school with a, a school in Oregon. So there were a lot oh, of yeah? uh, like study abroad students from there. And there were also like a hundred students going there like every year as well. Like Japanese Do you know what students. school it was? Yeah, it's uh, Willamette. Willamette? Yeah. Oh, okay. I was always wondering, it'd be funny if that was the, the school that I went to, but no, I, I went <laughs> But um, That would be a really big coincidence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I went to one of the biggest colleges in, in, in Oregon, I think, so it could have made sense. But yeah, for whatever reason, there is some connection between Oregon and Japan. And I'm not really sure what the route is, but actually, when I was at college at uh, um, University of Oregon, uh, the granddaughter of Natsume Soseki was a, a Japanese teacher there like a couple decades ago. And for anyone who doesn't know, Natsume Soseki is pretty much the most famous like literary author in Japan. He's considered to be pretty much the, be- the best Japanese author of all time, essentially. And so apparently his granddaughter came to Oregon right after World War II, and she basically started the Japanese program at that school. And so she passed away like a uh, a while before I went to that college, but b- she kind of started this tradition. And so like the Japanese program was pretty strong there and they had a huge Japanese section in the library. And yeah, there were a lot of Japanese foreign exchange students from really good schools. That was the shocking thing was that the school was like, it was just a state school. And so because I, you know, was an Oregon resident, it was super easy for me to get into the school, even though I didn't do that amazing in high school. But there were people from like Waseda and Kale coming to this school. So I'm like, man, these are like the top universities in Japan. They're coming to this kind of like, you know, third rate college. And I was like, what happened? Like, well, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was great for me because I got to like make smart Japanese friends. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I don't know what that connection is. And and the, that college that I went to, Oregon State Univers- or University of Oregon, isn't in Portland. It's like a couple hours away from Portland. But even in Portland, too, like uh, there's this other college in Portland called Portland State University. And there's a lot of foreign exchange students there, again, from like Waseda and, and like good schools in Japan, even though that college is also not like the most amazing school, I don't think. But uh, yeah, I don't know what it is. But I mean, actually, I have heard that there is uh, some famous like online article or something that that apparently listed like the out of all the cities in the US, the cities that Japanese people want to live in the most. And Portland was number one on that list. It was like, <laughs> Zenbei Sumitai Machiichi. <laughs> or whatever. And so there's this idea that like Portland is this super cool place within Japan. I have no idea how that got started, but somehow it has come about. And so, yeah, I think a lot of Japanese people come here for some reason. So in terms of learning Japanese, uh, yeah, it's it's really easy to meet Japanese people and and find opportunities to use Japanese. So it is cool in that way. But also for anyone who doesn't know, Portland kind of has a reputation of being a kind of hipster place. And so I do think like, you know, meditation is one of my other interests. And so I do think it's there are more meditators in Portland on average, probably compared to most cities in the U.S. So there, there it is nice uh, from that perspective too. I see. So do you think after talking to Japanese people in Portland, do you think they kind of ended up getting that <laughs> best place to live in America vibe towards the end of them staying there, or did it maybe change throughout <laughs> the process of staying there? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, when I was in uh, when I was going to uh, 
or uh, University of Oregon. Sorry, there's these two big state schools, Oregon State University and University of Oregon. And ever since I was in elementary school, people are always like, you know, they would like pick a side and they're like, are you a duck or a beaver? Because beaver is one of the mascots, the you know, duck's the other mascot. So I, I still get them confused in my head. But U of O, U- University of Oregon, that's the one I went to. I should, I should know that. Um, so <laughs> that college, it was a really nice campus because actually the guy who created Nike went there. And so he has sunk a bunch of money into making really nice sports facilities and stuff. So the actual campus is really nice. But once you leave campus... It's in this town called Eugene, and there is nothing happening in Eugene. It's like the most boring town where there's just nothing to do. So when I was going to to that school, all my Japanese friends were like, yeah, this sucks. Like, there's nothing to do when you leave campus. And they, you know, were not a fan. Uh, But in Portland, in Portland State University, actually, I did like a couple years at uh, University of Oregon and then like half half a year at Portland State University. So when I was going to Portland State University... Then a lot of a lot of the people really did like Portland because it was like a, a pretty cool town. I mean, more, Portland does have just aesthetically, it looks really cool. I, I like the kind of aesthetic of it. It has a pretty cool vibe. And so uh, a, lo- a lot of them, I think, did like Portland. I think a lot of them also were just like, nah, I want to go to L.A. and New York because that's where all the truly cool stuff is happening. But Since there's so many Japanese people located in Oregon, are there like centers in Oregon where it's like Japantown or, or something like that? Because I know like in L.A. they have... Like little Tokyo or like little Osaka, like places like that, where it's like Japanese supermarkets, Japanese bookstores, and just like Japanese people living there. Are there like places like that there? I don't really think there is. I mean, there is a Chinatown, but actually, I don't think there is a Japantown like that. Although there is this pretty big Japanese supermarket called Uwajimaya, and there's actually a Japanese bookstore called Kinokuniya within the supermarket. And so, you know, if you want to, like, for example, when Corona gets a, you know, ends a little bit more and I go out to film a like white guy shocks Japanese yeah. with his, with perfect. <laughs> when I try to film that, I'll probably go to Wajimaya because it's like I can count on Japanese people just shopping there and things like that. And yeah, also like the other day I went out to this Japanese restaurant with my family and we were put in this one area of the restaurant where there's we we were right next to this super long table where there was just like all these Japanese salary men like having a no, it was Friday night and it was like they were essentially having a nomikai and so uh, you know I talked to them and apparently they all worked for Hitachi and so like I mean I don't know maybe they have some hangout spot I don't know about but so so far it just seems like they're kind of just dispersed throughout Portland in various little pockets so I see. And also, um, in some of the other interviews I've done, and I think in your three-hour video, you said that, like, you have a bad habit of, like, every time you see a Japanese person, you go up <laughs> to them, and you, like, try to see, like, why they're there. Like, do you, do you still do that? And do you have any like, funny stories from doing that? Um, well, actually, the, the time that, that I just mentioned when we were at, when I was at that restaurant with my, my family, that was kind of funny because it was, uh, an, it was an izakaya type of place, and I ordered, like, Kare. And I, I think in general, it's like kind of a weird thing to get at like an izakaya, but, but it's like an American Japanese restaurant. So they'll have like anything that you want, essentially, because you know how like American Japanese play like in Japan, a restaurant would probably focus on a certain type of Japanese yeah. food because Japanese food is very broad, right? There's many different types. So it, in Japan, there's not just going to be a Japanese food restaurant that just has like everything from like sushi to, to kare to like everything like, that wouldn't really happen. Yeah, but like, but here that that is basically what happens because it's like an Amer- it's like within America. So, like, I ordered kare and 
some of the Japanese salarymen behind me were like, oh, look at that guy getting cut out. Like, oh, and they were like talking about it. They're like, oh man, that smells pretty good. Yeah, it's so huge. You think he's going to finish that whole thing? And so then I like turned around to them and I was like, why are you guys so, like in Japanese, I was like, why are you guys so interested in my curry? And, and then of course they were like completely mind blown and they're like, it, it. Like what? And then so that we, I ended up talking to them, and uh, and it was cool because I got to impress my family because, uh, like, I, I, there's not very many times I get to like prove to my family I actually know Japanese. Like I think they know I that I say that I do and stuff, but uh, but so like that was kind of funny. And but in general, like the reason why I say that it was a bad habit of doing that is because like the biggest reason to do it is just for like an ego boost essentially. Right. Cause it's like, no matter how many times you have that experience, having a Japanese people, t- uh, a Japanese person tell you that your Japanese is amazing. And the, they're like just having them be so blown away. It's always feels good. It's just like a pure egoic level. So I will, there was a time where I would tr- kind of try to not do it because I was like, no, come on, I'm going to transcend this. <laughs> but now it's kind of like, like I'll do it when I'm in the mood. There'll be a lot of other times where I don't do it. And I just, I'll see a Japanese person. I'll just, you know, let, let them go. Um, but sometimes I'll do it just, just for fun. Yeah. How, how do you know they're always Japanese? Um, I mean, there have been times where I assumed they were Japanese and they weren't. And it was like, um, like there have been times where, where like, I, I just spoke to them in Japanese and, and then they were like, what? And I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> actually, <laughs> the other day I, I was actually at like a Whole Foods and in the sushi corner, there was a guy who like looked pretty Japanese and, and my family was like, hey, go talk to them. So I, I like went and like spoke to him in Japanese and he's just like what and i was like oh like that's really embarrassing so that that can happen so you never know with 100 percent accuracy but a lot of times like if i'm on the train or something like you know japanese people like american people tend to be on their phone a lot so a lot of times you can just kind of peek over and if you see that they're online like then you know they're japanese yeah. and if, if there's multiple people and they're talking and then you can hear them and then you know it's japanese but a lot of times it's like they just have you know a certain unique type of fashion uh, and just a certain, just over time, I can't point pinpoint exactly what it is, but uh, over time, you just can kind of recognize that Japanese posture, you know, the like way that they hold themselves has, it's like subtly different from someone who grew up in the West. Yeah. So. Yeah. So now it's kind of like, you're that retired guy. When you feel like you have the opportunity, you're like, all right, guys, hold my piano. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be honest. It's more likely if I'm with someone, if I'm with a friend and I want to impress the friend, like it's more likely I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like whenever you see a Japanese group in public, they just look like they're from like a complete different like world. Like they're like aliens. Cause they just act so differently and they stand out so much. Oh yeah, like when I see a big group, it's extra tempting because it can be, you know, you can become the, you know, like the whole group is going to pay attention to you and all get impressed at the same time and yeah. and ask you all these really basic questions about America. I mean, now when I see a Japanese person, the thing is like, oh man, like how can I film this? Like, can I, can I like <laughs> how can I get like some kind of YouTube content out of this interaction? Yeah. That's like more how my shift my thinking has shifted. But I mean, after I made the VR chat video and like so. Basically, I think around four months ago, I made a video where I go onto VRChat, which is this, you know, online game and interact with Japanese people. And I I turned that into a YouTube video and I titled it White Guy Speaks Perfect Japanese in VRChat and uh, go figure it became my most viewed video. And so after that, I was like, okay, I I see why people do this. This like it works. And I got like 10,000 subscribers that month. So 
I do plan on making more, like I hinted out earlier, I'm make, making one of those videos where I, I'll go and speak to a Japanese person. So finally, all those years of practicing approaching Japanese people will hopefully pay off. Uh, yeah, actually, there's one guy that I always see on YouTube. It's this white guy who I think he's based in New York City, and he just always goes into Chinatown and speaks Chinese, and he just records himself every single time, and he gets so many views. So I can totally understand that kind of clickbait mindset. I wouldn't say clickbait, but like you just had that thumbnail in mm-hmm. ma- like in your head. You're like, ah, this is it. Like <laughs> I'm gonna go surprise these people. Everyone on YouTube, they're not even gonna know. Like, but I mean. I- I also think it's also a really good opportunity for you to get your content out there because it's kind of like, oh, this guy really knows what he's talking about with Japanese. And then it turns out, oh, you actually have a lot of content around Japanese. So go figure. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, by the way, Shaoma, the guy you just mentioned, I actually have a couple collab videos with him. But um, and I was supposed to fly out to New York so we could film more videos. But then Corona happened. So hopefully that will still happen uh, in the future as well. But, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of the way I think about it is it's just an kind of advertisement for my true content, which is how to learn languages and stuff like that. So it's just, you know, getting more people exposed to it. Because if someone's not exposed to it, then, you know, they're never going to get the opportunity to, to learn about it. So, yeah, also, I think, like, since you're making a lot of more videos now, like speaking Japanese, it gives you a lot more credibility for someone who just, just finds your channel. Because before it's like there's only just one Jiko Shokai video. And then mm-hmm. I saw like some people were like, oh, he like is clearly reading from a script, or like he definitely practiced that. But yeah, well, that's the funniest thing is like in the vid- in the video I released this morning, um, which uh, it is called "Why You Should uh, Learn Japanese Through Anime" or something like that. Uh, I speak Japanese in the video to prove that yeah, you can learn Japanese through anime, and it won't make you sound super weird because I did that. And so in the video, like yeah. I recorded the Japanese section a couple times and then chose the best one. I also did that for the, all of the English parts because that's literally how I film all my videos. Like, if you know, I'm that's how you get a a video like a short five minute video of you speaking well with very small verbal flaws. You have to do it a couple times. You know, I'm not, I mean, maybe some people are able to do it on the first try, but I'm not. So it's funny how like I'm literally doing the exact same thing for Japanese and English and then of course for the English no one thinks twice but the Japanese like oh no he rehearsed it so that's not his true ability yeah. it's like well is my English not my true ability either? So, <laughs> so yeah I think there's always going to be people that are going to be skeptical and are going to hate but over time I- I've noticed that the kind of vibe in the overall community has gone from oh no he's a he's faking it, he's not actually good to like yeah, he's good, but he spent five whole years doing it. So what do you expect? Of course he's good. So, you know, you could never win them all, but I've just learned to accept that over time. Yeah, take the small wins here and there. Yeah, so I guess now kind of now we're getting a little bit into like Japanese as a language. So, I I was wondering, so Anki is like a really big part of MIA in terms of having a spaced repetition system. And you've talked about it through several videos. But one thing I found really interesting was what would you say is one of the most useless Anki cards that you've ever created? Hmm. I mean, that's hard. I mean, useless is in the eye of the beholder, right? So I probably had a lot of cards that (laughs) most people would say, dude, what are you doing? But for me personally, I'm glad I, I knew it. Like just, I have whole cards just for like the etymology of words. And like, for example, if you know the word biking, it's basically the Japanese word for buffet. 
Like there's this pretty intricate backstory behind that word where like it, it was actually based off of like a movie because in, in the movie was called, but was called like biking I think. And it was, and it was in the movie, there was a buffet and some, some Japanese guy like saw that movie and he was like, Oh, we should bring this into Japan. And so, but, but like the original Swedish, it was like originally a Swedish thing. I think like the idea of having this kind of buffet and the Swedish name was like not very catchy and kind of, kind of long. So he's like, Oh, I'll just call it the name of the movie. And, and, uh, it was, it was biking. So like I had a whole card. It was just like a paragraph explaining this backstory. And I would, I like the front of the card would be like, what is the etymology of biking? And then the back would be this whole paragraph. It was all in Japanese. And I just like summarize the story story to myself and then look at the back of the card and like, see what details I missed. And I had a bunch of cards in that style. So like in hindsight, that was kind of a waste of time. Although it's kind of cool because I can have this, uh, what they would call in Japanese mame chishiki, which is like just this little tidbit of knowledge that most people don't yeah. have that you might, you might be able to pull out and, and entertain people with in a certain situation. Yeah. It'd be cool if you went on one of those quiz shows. Cause they're super big on that. Yeah. Like I might be able to do decent, but I don't know. Like yeah. I, I know a lot of stuff, but who knows how much stuff I don't there, there there's out there that I don't know, but a lot of times it's just like reading kanji. Yeah, like I mean, the thing with reading kanji is that I never just like downloaded a deck of rare kanji and just grinded it. I all I only learned stuff that actually came up in my immersion. And just because I would read a pretty wide a wide range of things and most things that came up I would make a card for, as a result I ended up being able to read most rare kanji. But there's also some kanji that like only come up on a kanji test and are literally never going to come up because it's like the name of a specific type of armor that was used in one specific period in Japanese history. And it has some super weird, unpredictable reading. And so it's like if you study for the Konken EQ, then you learn a bunch of super random, completely useless things like that. But personally, I never did that because my study was always based off of my immersion. You know, it was never based off of some just arbitrary standard like a test. And so in a way, you could say I, I avoided what could have potentially been truly the most useless cards because like I know people who study for that test, like sometimes, or at least I don't know if it's, they're studying for the actual Konken or those, or they're just studying for like, um, you know, the, the, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but there's like a kanji test that's built into some discord servers. There's like a bot you can add to your discord server that, that lets you like play kanji, like battle kanji test, oh, like have like a kanji test <laughs> battle with your friends inside of discord and oh, wow and it's only based off of being able to type the hiragana reading of kanji so i know there's probably people who like want to get good at that game and so they will just memorize the readings of words they don't even know what the word means but they just like memorize like okay these kanji are read like this <laughs> and it's just so they can win the game so that in my opinion would be truly useless but i didn't do that actually i i, I did something like that where i I went, I went to like a sushi restaurant in japan and they had a menu where they had the fish kanji for every single sushi and i was like with my host family and they're like can you read this can you read this and i couldn't read any of them so i was like fuck it i'm just gonna srs all of them and then like yeah a week later i could read all of them no that's that's pretty legit like i never did that but i did i did get decent at fish kanji because you know as they would come up in my immersion i learned them but they're definitely like i would i've experienced that situation when they're like Oh, you think you're good at kanji? Here, let me write out every single fish kanji and like actually see if you know them all. And then there'd be a bunch of them I didn't know because I'd like literally never heard of that type of fish before. So I actually had the thought like, oh, I should go and grind those fish kanji, but I never, never, never got around to it. But I, th- I think that's, that's totally legitimate. Like there, there are times where I would do that. Like for example, I made cards to memorize all the prefixures in Japan. And that was time, a time where 
it didn't necessarily come up in my immersion, but it was like, okay, I know that prefixures are coming up, so I'm just going to, you know, front load all the prefixures so that when a prefixure is mentioned, I have a rough idea of where that is in Japan. And that way I'll be able to start just building a mental model of like what's going on in each prefixure in Japan as I just like read novels and watch shows and things like that. And that was definitely worth doing. Um, I also learned all of the 23 districts in Tokyo. And that was also worth doing because then you kind of know like when you hear like, you know, uh, Minatoku or like things like that, you, you know, like where that is. And then if you want to learn like the name of a specific place within one of those districts, you can actually know, oh, it's okay. That's in like Edogawaku. Okay. Like you can start building your mental model of where everything is. But then I also learned all of the, all of the like little cities inside of the part of Tokyo that is not the 23 districts, which is pretty much just Inaka. So that was probably a waste of time. Japanese people don't even know that and it's never going to be relevant. So that was, that was pretty useless. And honestly, I failed those cards so often. They were so hard to remember because they were so arbitrary, you know, it's like you're just have this map with all these squiggles on it and you're just arbitrarily memorizing like, okay, like, you know, uh, this, this city, this city, that city. So I, I guess like, um, speaking to all those different locations have you ever because one thing we actually have this one friend who just got into jet and you know how for jet is just a whole randomizer in terms of placement Mm -hmm. have you ever gotten to a situation where someone you know is doing jet or any type of alt and they just hit you like oh yeah i just got placed over here and you're like oh well i got you covered i know everything about that place (laughs) Well, I mean, there's been times where someone's like, yeah, I got sent like here. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that's the middle of nowhere, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, a lot of times that's good because if they, you know, you get sent into the middle of nowhere, that means there's not going to be any other foreigners. So you'll get to, you know, probably interact more deeply with Japanese culture. Although you probably don't want to be sent to a place where they speak some weird dialect that is pretty different from the standard. And then you end up sounding kind of like, uh, I don't want to say hillbilly, but I mean, the unfortunate reality is that within Japan, besides a very small number of specific dialects like Kansai-ben or like a couple other like Hakata-ben or things like that, most dialects are considered to be like kind of like they sound unrefined, I guess. And people who are from various parts of Japan try to hide their regional dialect and sound like they're speaking standard Japanese. And so, like, as a learner, I definitely wouldn't want to, like, be sent to some place in Kyushu and, and, like, end up picking up some, some style of Japanese. I was like, nothing at all, like, standard Japanese. So there's that. I mean, I've heard Japanese people joke that, like, Okinawa, the, the dialect is so different that it's, like, its own language. They say, like, Okinawa go. Well, I mean, there is a Okinawan language that is, like, completely, not completely, but, like, pretty different from Japanese. But I think that, most people in Okinawa speak something that's very close to Hyojingo, and I think the actual like Okinawan language is dying out. It's kind of like Hawaiian, I think, in in terms of its like you know place within the society. I don't know too much about it. I see. Have you ever thought about like doing something like that, like becoming a a jet, or like whether or not you would want to teach English? Uh, I mean, I've well, I don't want to teach English, but I've I've thought <laughs> about it in the sense of it'd just be a good way to get over yeah. to Japan. I think Um, at this point, I don't really think I would need it because now that I've kind of been running my own business for over a year and have been making money that way, like, I don't think I'm ever going to go back to like having a boss and like working under something, someone else or working 
under some other organization, like organization or things like that. Just due to my personality, I, I never do well, you know, having to follow other people's instructions and stuff. So at this point, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to like keep MIA going. And maybe when I go to Japan, I'll, I can, uh, I mean, well, now my source of income is pretty independent from location because it's something online. So uh, I'm also a Canadian citizen, so I can get a working holiday visa or I should be able to. Uh, and so that's a visa that is offered to Canadian people, but not to people, who, not to U.S. citizens. And it's has a, a lot of perks that make it pretty good. It's like I think you, you can just go to Japan uh, for like 90 days and, and work and and just do whatever you want. And then it's like extendable too. I think I don't remember the details, but so if I was going to go to Japan, I'd probably just get that and then keep doing the, the work I'm doing now. So I don't really see any reason now to like go and teach English or anything. I see. But I think for other people who just like, you know, want to get their, their feet off the ground in Japan, I think it totally makes sense. Even if you're not that interested in teaching English. Do you ever see kind of like a, a long-term vision or future in Japan? Kind of like, you know, those um, YouTubers such as like the Anime Man, they're kind of um, sponsored to be in Japan because of their following on YouTube. Do you ever see that as like a possibility of just living there and kind of utilizing your Japanese skills and being fully immersed at all times? Yeah, it's definitely a possibility. Uh, I'm not like 100% set on it so in my mind it's kind of like it could go either way but i definitely see that as a possibility if i did go to japan then i i would try to build up a japanese audience and help them learn english because in a way i think that learning english as a japanese person is going to afford you more opportunities than learning japanese as an english speaker because the reality is that english right now is uh, i mean Besides Mandarin Chinese, right? It's the most commonly used language. And for th most things that you probably care about, it's the most commonly used language. And so the amount of information you gain access to if you're a Japanese person who learns English and like the, the possible job opportunities and things like that is just enormous. Whereas if you already speak English, then in a way, the really practical like benefits that you're going to get from learning a language are always going to be kind of rather slim. I mean, of course, there's the benefit of learning another culture and, you know, expanding your worldview and things like that. But in terms of just the practical benefits of like, what information are you going to gain access to? Like, how many people are you going to gain access to? Then, yeah, you, you pretty much already have the best one if you speak English. So because of that, I think it would kind of be inherently more rewarding to help people like Japanese people learn English. And so I am definitely interested in that, especially because they are very... Like, there's not a lot of good resources for Japanese people who are serious about learning English. Like, I haven't really seen anyone talking about immersion learning or real, really doing anything like what MIA is trying to do. So I think they they kind of need it in a way as well. So I think that would be really cool to go to Japan and get to, like, really polish my Japanese and then use that to help Japanese people learn English. Definitely something I'm interested in doing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess the way that I that I kind of feel about it is that like right now, just due to the way my life has played out, there's like I, I've dedicated so much of my time and, and energy over the past 10 years to Japan and to Japanese. And so and I and I like Japan and Japanese like I'm I'm not like I don't like unconditionally love Japan the way that I thought I did when I very first started. And we could like talk more more about this, too. But 
If anything, I'm kind of like neutral, biased towards the positive side towards Japan. And so like given that, just combined with the fact that I've dedicated so much of my life to it, it kind of seems like the natural thing to do. Like just given my current situation is to go to Japan and continue to pursue this sort of direction in my life. But I also just have the thought of like, well, I'm still pretty young. I could do something completely different. So I don't want to decide the direction of the rest of my life just because of what I happen to have done in my like late teenage, early 20s. So I, I also just want to keep the possibilities open. So yeah, I, I could totally see it going either way. Yeah, I definitely think if you went there and still like were able to continue doing what you're doing, that'd be like really cool. And also like showing Japanese people MIA. But going going off of what you said earlier, do you feel like um, you're fighting against Japan, like a battle, like given your username is Matt versus Japan. Do you feel like for the majority of the time of you like being involved with Japan, do you feel like it was like, I want to beat this, I want to beat this country, this language and f- complete it? I mean, I chose that username when I was like 15, 16. And the backstory is I was going to just make my YouTube channel called Japan Matt, but that was taken. And that was back when, you know, YouTube channel names had to be unique. And so I was on the fly. I was like, oh, crap, what else could I do? Okay, I'll just do Matt versus Japan. And I like had no like more thoughts about it than that. I wasn't like, oh, yeah, I'm in a battle against Japan. So it's going to be cool. I think I think it was just like in my mind, it wasn't really any different than Matt versus Japanese. It just sounded a little better. So it wasn't really like I felt like I was in a competition against those people or that country. It was more just like, yeah, I'm on a pursuit to master this language. And it kind of was supposed to signify that Uh, for the for the bulk of my time learning Japanese, I don't think it felt like I was in a in like a competition or in a battle with Japan or Japanese people. Maybe with the language itself, because it was just like, hey, I'm trying to master this language. But overall, yeah, I don't really think it felt like uh, I was in a battle or anything. Like, I, I think the name does kind of give you that sort of impression. But yeah, the reality is that it was not like that. There was a period when I was at college when I started actually hanging out with Japanese people. And then I kind of was coming to the terms of the realization that they didn't think of me the same way that they thought of other Japanese people. They thought of me as a foreigner, even though I was fluent in Japanese. And that did just hurt to realize because it felt like, I mean, I think the reality was I had the expectation that if I mastered their language, then they were going to accept me as one of them. And of course, I'd heard lots of stories of people saying like, oh, no, Japanese people are never going to think of you as as one of them. Like, they're always just going to see you as a gaiju. But I was like, yeah, but most, like, but the, the people that were saying that sucked at Japanese. So I was like, well, yeah, of course they say you as a gaijin. You don't speak Japanese. So I thought I was going to be different, essentially, because I was actually going to master the language. So once I started to experience, like, oh, that's actually not the case. They do just register me as a foreigner, and they treat me differently because of that. That did just hurt and make me kind of salty, And I think there was a sort of period where I was like, okay, I'm going to show those Japanese people. Like, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to be better than them. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to like make them look up to me and like make them respect me. And there was a kind of little period there, but I kind of grew out of it rather quickly. I don't think it lasted more than a year. I see. So at that point, you're kind of like, okay, like if you're not going to accept me as one of your own, I'm going to become the ultimate gaijin in your eyes. (laughs) 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 yeah like it's really cringy to say now but uh that is kind of like how i felt uh i think it was just kind of like the natural kind of like immature emotional reaction of just having dedicated so much time and energy to japanese and then feeling like they weren't really recognizing that or like honoring that kind of going off of that do you feel like you would rather would you rather be 
the ultimate gaijin or just straight up a Japanese person? Um, well, now I don't really feel like I, I want to be like the ultimate gaijin or anything. Like that's that was an entirely inagoic thing. Like that just has to do with me being insecure when I was in high school and then trying to find find a new just a new external way to ground my identity and Japan was just something that, that I that I latched onto out of desperation essentially of like okay I'm not I'm a loser in American high school I don't want to be a loser how can I stop being a loser oh I'll stop being a loser by uh not caring about America and just going to Japan and being cool in Japan so uh, yeah like it was that that desire to be the ultimate gaijin was rooted in that kind of insecurity in my own identity and my own kind of just yeah self-esteem and things like that and so i think i've grown out of that largely to the point where like i don't feel like i need to have some external thing to ground my identity and like i know who i am even if i'm not the ultimate gaijin so that i mean i don't really have that desire anymore and so uh i also don't have a desire to be japanese either because i mean i think in a lot of ways being japanese would kind of suck uh like right now in japan because there's so much more pressure to conform within japanese society which leaves you two pretty bad options either one conform or two fight against all the pressure to conform and constantly be having to like go against the grain and be uh like at a kind of like given the disadvantage in many areas because of that and so uh, I mean, I think this is changing in Japan. I think more and more Japanese people are starting to, to realize that this idea of like, oh, just follow the predetermined path, like just follow the rails that have been like laid out for you is like not going to get Japan to where it needs to go in the future. And so more and more people are starting to kind of think outside the box and things like that. But still, to the, for, to, for the most part, Japanese people are still very conformist. So. Uh, yeah, like I wouldn't want to be conformist because personally I'm, I'm pretty, uh, like, like right now I'm kind of doing my own thing. You know, I already feel like I couldn't work at a company because I'm not good at, like, I, I don't want to do what other people tell me to do. I just want to do what I want to do. So like, I don't think I would be a very good Japanese person at all, to be honest. So <laughs> yeah, we've actually, um, interviewed a couple of ALTs on our podcast previously and they kind of got at that as well, where they've been so used to this whole idea of being having individualism in like america and then they go to japan and that's like all out the window and it's like society expects like them to just be the same even though at the end of the day they never will be because they're not japanese and they've kind of like you were saying before kind of lost that unconditional love for japan and i guess for you specifically kind of not really having that pure unconditional love is that has that affected your drive at all for learning Japanese? Especially because you've also consumed so much Japanese media to like a point where nothing is really new to you, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll say in my mind, like, I still really love the Japanese language, and I still have a passion for the Japanese language. And in my mind, that is separate from how I feel towards Japan as a country or how I feel towards Japanese people. And so. Like, yeah, I, d- I definitely still love to just sit down and read a Japanese book. I still think, like, the characters are really beautiful and, and the way that ideas are expressed in Japanese are really uh, unique and beautiful. And so uh, there is that. I mean, it also, de- it definitely, I I have less drive to improve because before when my whole identity identity was wrapped up in how good I was with Japanese, 
it was like literally an existential issue, right? Like getting good at Japanese, getting better Japanese meant like becoming more of a person, having a, a stronger identity. And so I think that like in a way, there's nothing more motivating than something that's tied up with your identity because in a way, humans are survival machines and what we're surviving, so to speak, what we're like, we're trying to um, keep alive is not only our physical body, but also our identity. That's like literally from the, I think the perspective of the psyche, it's, it's just as real and as important as your physical body. So yeah, but I, it was literally like an existential issue for me being good at Japanese before, whereas now it's kind of just a hobby. And I mean, I also have the pressure of like, I've created my whole YouTube channel around me being like really good at Japanese. So there's like pressure, external pressure from, uh, in that sense. But, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely have to shift the way that I think about it a lot to, to really viewing it as just a process rather than trying to get to some certain goal and kind of just learn to enjoy the process of improving slowly over time and just enjoy learning more about Japanese for the sake of learning more about Japanese just because I like the, the Japanese language. And uh, and I do try to keep that separate from like how I feel about Japan or Japanese people and things like that. Yeah, also in the past, you, you mentioned having specific things that you want to like go back and SRS or master in, in Japanese. And I guess now that you kind of see it more as a hobby and not sort of an existential crisis, do you still have things that you want to master in SRS? And if so, like what, what kind of things are they? Yeah, I do. Well, I'll preface this by saying like, I still, I think that my Japanese has tons of, of uh, room to improve for sure. And for, for a while, I was kind of going back and forth between like, trying to, to really get back into that mode or I, I was trying to improve my Japanese and kind of take it to the next level. And then also just kind of losing interest or, or having other priorities kind of get in the way. But I kind of, within the past maybe like six months, kind of really realized that, yeah, I do want to take my Japanese to the next level. And there's a lot of things I want to improve. But being at where I'm at right now, trying to do that, outside of Japan would be a real uphill battle. Like I'd, ha I'd have to really fight my environment to do that because in order to like, I'm already extremely fluent in Japanese. So for me to get better, like one really fundamental issue that I've uh, become more and more aware of is that like, even if I do Japanese a couple hours a day, if I'm thinking in English for significantly more hours each day than I am thinking in Japanese, then like I'm going to be just have habitual english style thoughts and when i'm speaking japanese there's still that process of like have it's like if you, if the first thought that pops in your head is an english kind of style thought then there's going to be some like hesitation and awkwardness when you try to put that into japanese the only way for like me to feel like i uh, could take my japanese to the next level would be for me to speak japanese all the time so that my first in like initial thought or or like the first thing that pops into my head is are is already like a japanese style of idea or a japanese style thought and in order for that to happen, I need to just be spending, like, speaking Japanese, like, at least as much as I'm speaking English. And so living in America and working through through English mostly, because running MIA is something I do in English largely, like, I would have to just really be constantly fighting my environment, like, be scheduling italki lessons all the time and, like, constantly trying to, like, set up stuff with, like, Japanese people to hang out with. And, and like, I'd be feel, feeling guilty whenever I spent time with, like, my family and my other English-speaking friends. So... It'd be such an uphill battle. Whereas if I was in Japan, then it'd be the opposite. It'd be completely natural. It'd, it'd probably happen without me even having to put any specific work into it because everything and everyone around me would be in Japanese. So I've realized like 
rather than me trying to fight my environment and work really hard to improve my Japanese now, it kind of just makes more sense to stay in maintenance mode. And then if I do go to Japan um, in the future, then when that time comes, I will probably put a lot more effort into improving my Japanese because it will just make more sense, right? And, and when I'm in that environment, when I get better at Japanese, that will actually have real consequences in my life because I'm going to be using Japanese to communicate with everyone in my life. So every little bit that I improve at Japanese will actually improve my interactions with people. It will allow me to express myself better. Whereas now, like the only benefit of getting better at Japanese is like I can, I mean, there's really, there isn't any because like the only time I use Japanese, besides like when I talk to my girlfriend who's Japanese, um, like when I talk to my girlfriend Japanese, it's like sometimes maybe I'll say like unnatural stuff, but she's already so used to the way that I speak that it doesn't really matter. So like in that sense, it wouldn't even really matter if I got better Japanese. And then like if I made YouTube videos in Japanese, then like what well, I'm already good enough to the like right now that 99.9% of my audience can't even notice what, perfe- what imperfections there are in my Japanese. So even if I improved those, nothing would really change. So right now it's like, it's, it's, it would be so much work to improve my Japanese post, there would be no real tangible reward. So I'm not like incentivized to do that. Whereas if I was in Japan, like I said, it, w- it would be more natural. So there are a lot of things I want to improve about my Japanese and I'll, we can, I'll go into those right now, but I'm not really worried about them right now. It's something that I would do once I go to Japan and I kind of get back into that mode of like, okay, I'm going to try to like really take my Japanese to the next level. Like, let's see if I can get like really close to native level, essentially, which I do, I do have interest in doing and, and like, if I, if I go to Japan, I will try to do that. So let's see. I mean, they're just in terms of like pure knowledge, like there's lots of plants that I don't know. Um, there's lots of foods that I don't know, like types of trees that I don't know, flowers, um, probably st- some like animals, like specific types of bugs that most Japanese people probably know because they learned when they were a kid, um, types of like dinosaurs. And, uh, there's probably a lot of things you learn in grade school, like, um, like Galileo, what's the katakana for Galileo? I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. I've probably heard it before, but in like, you know, all the big events in, in like world history and like, there's tons of things that you, you learn in, in throughout grade school that I probably still don't know that much in Japanese. Um, I'm still feel like I'm not as good at numbers as I would like to be. Like there's still, uh, sometimes if I hear a really big number in Japanese, it takes me a couple seconds to like convert that into meaning. Whereas in English, it's like totally automatic. And, like, doing math in Japanese is way harder. Those are some things. Um, like, Kegel. I know Kegel, like, vaguely, but if I was going to go live in Japan, I would study Kegel to the point where I know it, like, you know, like, 100%. Like, I would get to the point where I'm correcting Japanese, other Japanese people's Kegel. Like, I, I know, like, exactly what the politeness level of every word is and exactly what is, like, orthodox and not orthodox and all these things. Whereas now I kind of have, like, a vague idea and most Japanese people, I think, only have a vague idea of, like, roughly what is what level of politeness. But I would not be satisfied with that. I would, like, go and, like, totally get that down. And, um, yeah, I mean, if I if I had more time, I could come up with a bunch of those little, little things like that. There's just so many, you know, of, of those little things. But and, and also, like, I think in general, like, if you just watch my videos over the past couple years, like, you go watch my videos from three years ago, compare them to now. I think I've gotten a lot better at speaking English and I don't really know if I would say that I got better at English per se, but I got better at just talking in English. Like I'm able to speak more confidently with more rhythm and organize my thoughts better in real time. And that is just a result of practicing speaking English because through running my YouTube channel, I've spent many hours 
speaking English very intentionally in front of a camera and then watching the recording back and becoming aware of what I didn't like and trying to improve that next time. And so I feel like I haven't gone through that process to the same extent with Japanese. And so if I just like tried to start a channel in Japanese and started like regularly filming longer videos in Japanese and watching them back, like just through that, that, that type of practice that I think even most native speakers haven't done, I think that I could get a lot more confident in my speaking, you know, get, get, get a lot better in general in, in that sort of sense too. So yeah, tons of, tons of things I could improve on and pitch accent is still not perfect. So it's that too. Right. I see. You also kind of briefly mentioned、um, your Japanese girlfriend. So, most times when people think about improving their Japanese, it's like through themselves, right? But would you say she has had like any effect in terms of your growth, in terms of not necessarily like getting to like a next level, but just in terms of improvement in Japanese?、Um, only very minorly, honestly. Like, it doesn't, like, I mean, I think that I got more comfortable at expressing myself in Japanese, but it doesn't feel like my Japanese has gotten better. It feels like, like, speaking Japanese the way that I speak Japanese got easier, but the quality of my Japanese didn't actually get better, if that makes sense. So it's like, basically, what say that,、uh, that's something that I think people don't properly、uh, distinguish when they're thinking about language ability is there's just like, how much effort does it take to speak? Versus what is the quality of the language that is coming out of your mouth? Because on one hand, you could be very comfortable with speaking and you could be able to express yourself. No problem. It's just flowing out of your mouth. You know, no, no effort. But then you're making grammar mistakes and your pronunciation is awful and you're using words unnaturally. That's a possibility. Or you could have very high quality output where your, you know, your, your grammar is, is, Completely perfect, and you're using words properly, and your pronunciation is good, but you kind of speak slowly and intentionally, and just takes a lot of effort for you to express yourself in that language. And and you could have any combination of, of either one. So I feel like talking to my Japanese girlfriend really regularly in Japanese made the effort level go down, but it didn't improve the actual quality. So there, all the issues that happened are like still there. And I even feel like there's like some, some habits. That I've like solidified. Like, there's certain things I know that I say too much that, like, there's certain, like, one, one thing that I think is really actually hard in Japanese, but I don't hear talked about a lot is just like how hard it is to have natural sentence enders. Because, like, there's so many different possible sentence enders in Japanese, right? Like, whether you're like, soldana, soldane, like, like, a soljang, a soldane, like, there's like a million different possibilities. And so it's like, The problem is that, like, first of all, you have to use the right one, but you also can't use the same one too many times, or it starts to sound like awkwardly repetitive. And so I realized for myself, like, first of all, I use certain ones like more than I think Japanese people do. And I also just use the same like two or three, like over and over and over again. Whereas Japanese person might use more like five or six. And so there'd be more variation. And I noticed like speaking hat all the time. In the same types of conversations has like solidified this more. So I definitely don't feel that, like, oh yeah, just talking to a Japanese person on a regular basis will like, just magically make your Japanese improve. Like, yeah, it gets easier to speak the way that you speak, but it won't actually make the way that you speak get like, you know, raised very higher. Like, I mean, I've probably picked up some of her traits and like some of her expressions. Like, I think I have. There's certain things that, that she will say that like I say now that I don't think I said before. But yeah, overall, I mean, I think that idea of like, oh yeah, just, you know, if you get a significant other who speaks your target language, that'll be the, the magic 
magic secret to you know getting fluent i i don't believe in that all right sorry guys looks like getting a japanese girlfriend's not gonna help you out (laughs) um yeah but on the other hand getting a japanese girlfriend might not help your japanese but knowing japanese might help you get a japanese girlfriend so there you go like (laughs) there it is (laughs) like i met this this uh girl in america when she was studying abroad and she had to go back to japan because of corona now but she doesn't really speak English, and she doesn't want to speak English. Like, she can speak English because she was studying abroad, but she doesn't like to speak English. So she would never date someone if, if she had to speak English to that person, you know? And so, mm-hmm. like, definitely our relationship never would have happened if I wasn't fluent Japanese. Like, we, we speak a Japanese literally 100% of the time. So that's cool. Like, and, and, I mean, I have a lot of times where I'm just speaking to her, and I'm realizing, and, like, even though my output might not be 100% native, I might say unnatural stuff or have, like, hic- other hiccups, like, Ultimately, I can say, like, literally everything I want to say and, in, like, a pretty pretty relatively effortless way. And I understand literally everything she says. So we can have, like, really deep conversations, even about philosophy and about life, all in Japanese. So I do have a lot of moments where I'm like, hey, this is pretty cool. I'm, like, you know, doing this all entirely in Japanese. So that is kind of a moment where it feels like the hard work has paid off. Right. Earlier you said how your personality is more American than it is Japanese. Mm-hmm. and do you think because of that, have you ever felt any sort of like cultural differences between you and your girlfriend? Like maybe she expected you to act a certain way, but you didn't. Um, I mean, there are definitely a lot of those like kind of like differences in our value system, but I don't really, I never have felt that it was like Japanese versus American. I kind of like felt like it was just me as an individual versus her as an individual. And like, like a lot of it, it also just kind of feels like it, it, it'd be more stereotypical of just like man versus woman differences first than like Japanese versus American differences. <laughs> like, um, like for she, she uh, is like really passionate about music and she's like in a band and some of her favorite artists, she'll, she'll like listen to a song and be like, yeah, but like I almost cried listening to the lyrics and I'll listen to the lyrics and I'll be like, it just sounds like a generic pop song. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and so, like, <laughs> there'll, be, there'll be, like, things like that, but, like, uh, and, like, a bunch of other things. I mean, also, I think this girl is, is also, like, not very stereotypical for a Japanese person. Like, she has, uh, like, so, like, she's pretty individualistic. It has a lot of quirks, and it's, like, pretty independent in her thinking. And so, also, I think that's, like, why we get along really well, too. Um, so, I think that's part of it. But, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately i mean because our relationship is like an individual versus individual thing all the differences feel more like they are uh, something that's on the individual level versus on the you know like it never i never take it in my mind to like oh japanese versus american you know so it's never matt versus japan <laughs> it's only the channel <laughs> <laughs> no yeah and i mean i guess we briefly touched on this before too about how japan is more about like less from individualism more about like conforming to like the greater good would you say your girlfriend actually having the time to come to america really helped like enhance that like aspect of her of her personality yeah like actually i I think she was kind of telling me the other day how she feels like coming to america made her a lot more assertive in like stating what she thinks like she said before she came to america whenever someone asked her like hey like what do you want to eat or like hey where do you want to go like she would always just be like oh anything's fine and that was kind of like her default like she would never like state how she really felt she would just try to leave it up to the group whereas she realized like 
you know, in America, if you do that, people are, are just good. Like in Japan, you can say anything's fine. And the other person might still like, they're not really going to interpret that as, okay, cool. I don't, I'm just going to do whatever I want now. They're still going to try to like, think about, okay, well, they're just being polite. Like, what do they really want to do? Let me make sure that, you know, I'm considerate. Whereas in America, if you're like, anything's fine, then, the, then they literally are just going to be like, okay, cool. I'm just going to do what I want then. And so she said like, you know, <laughs> through that, she learned to be more assertive and to kind of state her opinion and, and things like that. And so like, yeah, I think definitely it kind of changed her. And I, and I think also like, yeah, coming here and seeing the differences in like uh, the thinking styles and things like that also helped her like understand me more. I, I, I think for sure. Yeah. I see. And like, I guess in terms of how you actually met her, you told, uh, you said that she came and studied over here. Um, mm-hmm. So how exactly did that work? Were you, is it when you were also in school or did you just have like a chance encounter? So basically I never actually graduated from the college. Like I was going to, I've always just hated school. So like, yeah, I, I went to university of Oregon for, for like, two and a half years. And then I took some time off school. Cause it just got to the point where I was like, Oh, like I, I sucks. I hate this. And then I started doing like my, started my YouTube channel, things like that. And then I transferred to Portland state university so that I could continue to, you know, finish college without having to move to a different city. And I only went for like two terms before I was just like, nah, I'm done with school. I'm just going to focus on MIA. Like I'm, I'm just going to like, you know, do this full, like really go all the way on this. Um, but I did, I did make some friends when I was at Portland State University. And so I have this other friend who I'm still in contact with. He's still going to school there. And, uh, they, they have these events at Portland State University that are like for international students to like meet people who are interested in like foreign languages and stuff. And like, they call it coffee hour. And so in, uh, in like late March, I was scheduled to fly to New York to film a video with shama like i kind of mentioned earlier and so because you know i was going to be videos of me speaking japanese were going to be seen by potentially hundreds of thousands of people uh, i was like okay i gotta polish up my japanese like i gotta you know like i gotta start practicing so that i I can sound (laughs) as good as possible and so i actually uh went to coffee hour with that friend that that i that still goes to school there so and just to like go meet some japanese people and and get to practice japanese and i met her there so although I never ended up going to go to New York, something still came out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always go to coffee hour. <laughs> Life <laughs> lessons. <laughs> so now I guess your relationships kind of transitioned into long distance because of Corona. Would you say like any your dynamic has changed in any way or has it been like as strong as ever? Um, I mean, at this point, we've been like long distance longer than than we knew each other in person. So, like, I feel like I know her so much better than I did when, you know, when she first went back to Japan. So, in a way, like, it doesn't, it doesn't really feel as much like anything is missing. Like, I feel like if we did it for, like, six months in person and then became long distance, it probably would have been a, a much harder transition. But, um, yeah, I mean, so, we talk, like every other day or every like third day like on the phone and you know we always like text and stuff like that so yeah i feel like i mean it's first time i've ever been like a long distance relationship and it's not like the most serious thing it's only been you know a couple months as of right now but but yeah overall like 
I definitely feel like I, I know her way better now than I did back then. So I guess it, it feels like, yeah, it's pretty much just going pretty strong, I'd say. Do you find it hard to like maintain long distance relationships also with like your friends that you met um, that were studying abroad in America, but then moved back to um, Japan? Yeah, I mean, we don't really talk that often. Like, like I'd say there's probably at this point, like two Japanese people who I would like feel like I had a true friendship with that, like went beyond the fact that like I was interested in Japanese and they were interested in English and things like that. And uh, one of them was actually someone who I met at a university of Oregon. One of them was someone who I met at Portland State University. And so we will talk like a couple times a year, but that's about it. Uh, just cause we're both busy. Like one of the friends, he's like doing shukatsu right now, you know? So he's like super busy, but I mean, he'll, he'll like text me every once in a while online. He'll be like, Hey, I saw your video. Like, like, uh, the, the cool thing is he was a big fan of Dogen, that friend. And the first time I met him, he was like, like after we got over the fact that I was fluent in Japanese stuff, he's like, Oh man, have you ever heard of Dogen? You got to watch him. He's so <laughs> funny. Like he's my favorite YouTuber. And so like when I got to make, you know, a collaboration video with Dogen, he was like, oh, this is mind-blowing. I can't believe I know a friend. <laughs> like, I know someone who knows Dogen. This is crazy. And so, uh, yeah, that was, like, pretty cool that it got to happen. But, I mean, I think we'll, we'll probably definitely reconnect if I go back to Japan. And, um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think I could have made more effort to maintain that relationship. But I guess it is hard to, um, I, I feel like, for me personally, just due to my personality, I'm the type of person who will maintain a, a, at any given time, like a smaller number of like really close relationships. And so it's hard to maintain a large number of like those type of long distance friendships and things like that. Um, because, you know, you have to, you have to really take your time. I mean, sometimes you have your close friends who you're like chatting with all the time. Right. So for those people, it's easy to, to stay close with, but for the people who are like the next level, um, like, not we're not that close, but you're trying to still like talk like at least every month or something like that. It gets a lot harder because you really have to kind of like schedule it in, you know? And so I've kind of just neglected a lot of those uh, relationships and let it kind of just be to the point where, yeah, it's every, every, every once in a while, like a couple times a year, we will t- catch up. But for the most part, you know, we're not staying in contact that much. I see. So we also talked about a little bit about coffee hour a little bit earlier. So I was wondering if, you had any other interesting stories of meeting Japanese people through um, through meetings like this through school? Because of course you met your girlfriend, but did you have any anything that really like stuck out to you where it's like oh, I can't believe this just happened? I mean, there was pretty like of course what would normally happen is like you know go to coffee hour. There's like a table of Jap you know three four Japanese people. You go and sit there, and then. In the context of coffee hour, I'd normally, you know, there's always two different paths you can take, right? You can take the jump right into Japanese path, or you can take the speak English and then switch halfway through and shock them path. And so <laughs> I'd, I'd normally take the, like, start in English path because uh, I guess there's there's a, a it's kind of dynamic that happens, whereas, like, the Japanese person, when you start, you know, you're at coffee hour, you're speaking English, they assume that you don't know Japanese because most Americans don't know Japanese. And so they're trying so hard to express themselves and they're, like, really broken English. And in a way they're, uh, they're very vulnerable while they're doing that. Right. Cause I mean, you're, you're vulnerable when you're speaking a foreign language that you don't know very well. And so 
then after making them kind of like pour their heart into like trying to express a basic idea in English to then just like switch into fluent Japanese, like they had like they feel like they've been pranked. And a lot of times the reactions are literally the same as like a prank video when they're just like, ah, oh, fuck. And so like, so like that's always fun to do and like see those reactions, especially when it's a group, because then, you know, they'll like all start cracking up and and um, and then, yeah, it's like pretty much the exact same thing plays out every time it's like oh you're so good at japanese how'd you get so good at japanese did you live in japan like can you read kanji like like all all that stuff and so like i never totally get i never truly get bored of it like i said you know earlier but i mean i have done that so many times where it's kind of like at a certain point it just feels like i'm just going through the motions because it's kind of the same every time um i mean probably the coolest thing that's happened at coffee hour is when i was actually going to portland state university that that friend who i mentioned who like still goes there. Like he actually knew me as Matt vs. Japan before we met. Like he came up to me and he's like, are you Matt vs. Japan? And <laughs> to this day, that is like, uh, or it might've happened one other time, but that, that's like the only like clear time I can remember where someone like recognized me in person. And so that was probably the craziest thing. Like that was the most, one of the most surreal experiences of my life of like, I'm just like at school and some, someone knows me. I don't know them, like, <laughs> but Yeah. Have you ever been in a situation with um, other gaijin and you, like, maybe try to flex on them and show that you're better at Japanese? Like, when I was at University of Oregon, I would do that a lot because, like I said, like, back then it was, like, the the core of my identity was I was super good at Japanese. And so, yeah, I would go and try to, like, basically assert my dominance. <laughs> but, like, at a certain point, like, one, by the time I got to Portland State University, I, had, like, matured to the point where it just felt like I was being a bully when I did that, essentially. Like, when I, when, uh, we just go and, like, I, I, cause, like, when I was at Portland State University, like, I, there was kind of this com- little community that was comprised of partly Japanese foreign exchange students and partly American people who were studying Japanese. And they had a really nice dynamic going, I could observe kind of from the sidelines because, the foreign exchange students were were decent at English, but not great. And then some of the the American students were like could kind of speak Japanese, but they weren't that great. So they were really able to kind of help each other out in a way with with the language abilities. And it was like it was like typical cultural exchange. They were you know helping each other out, teaching each other. It was really great. And so I like spent a little bit of time trying to kind of like hang out with some of those people, but it really just felt like I didn't really fit because like. I knew too much of the Japanese and then I knew the English. So it's like there would be times where like they have, they, they had their kind of section of the library where they would hang out and I'd go and I kind of like chat with them for a couple minutes. And then like, we would just start speaking. I would start speaking Japanese to the Japanese people. And then the American people, like they wouldn't be good enough at Japanese to follow our conversation. So then they just kind of feel like left out and like, they don't know what's going on. And then I would, I would feel, I mean, part of me was like, you know, I had that ego boost, like, haha, <laughs> like you guys suck. But like, for the most part, I just felt like, oh, I feel bad for them. Like, I feel like I'm being mean. Like, I like, it, it, and there was just this awkwardness of it, right? It just felt so awkward. I feel like, oh, this sucks. I don't want this. So like, <laughs> like after that, I kind of like didn't really hang out with them uh, that much because, I mean, for me, like, like I ultimately end, ended up like mostly hiding my power level because. <laughs> like nothing really good came out of me like flexing on them because they didn't really what they would i feel like they just feel is okay this guy's good at japanese but he's also a douche (laughs) and so like this like you know what do i really get out of making these people think that i'm a douche you know and it's like i get the ego boost but ultimately it's it's not nothing really good's coming out of coming out of it so ultimately i would end up kind of just hiding my power level and and stuff and 
and ultimately just not really hang out with them because it's like someone after have dedicated like so much of my life to doing the super hardcore and then there's these people who are like so like nonchalant about it it's just like it felt like I was faking it. Like I couldn't really say what I was thinking. I couldn't really be real with them because we were just not on the same wavelength. And so ultimately I just kind of decided to like not really talk to them. So, and, and also I think what happened was like when I was at college, uh, when I was at university of Oregon, sorry. Uh, I had dedicated so much of my life to Japanese, but I didn't have very many people to share that with. So I was always kind of like on the lookout for someone who I could like, you know, indoctrinate into the AJAT philosophy and, and, you know, get them on the immersion train and stuff like that. Just because, like, I had dedicated so much of my life to this and I had no one to share it with. I had a few AJAT friends online, but not very many. Whereas now I have my a whole community of people who are watching my videos and, and doing MIA and, like, applying the techniques. And so that kind of need to, like, have people to connect with about learning, learning languages and immersion learning is already met. And so... Now, when I see other Japanese learners, it's like, I don't really have any real desire to go interact with them because I know chances are we're not really going to see eye to eye. And I already have a bunch of other people who I can see eye to eye with that I can go and have have really meaningful interactions with. So, yeah. So at school, um, so you kind of mentioned where it's kind of hard to fit in because the Japanese level of everyone else is kind of not at the same level as you. So did you did you ever find any like-minded people at school? Yeah, well, well, that one guy who actually recognized me, Matt Rich Japan, uh-huh. we bonded because he, he actually, you know, I think he was, he, he saw me on 4chan, actually. Oh, wow. And so, like, he, he was, I mean, he still wasn't, he wasn't on the immersion train, I would say, but he at least, like, he had done Anki super hardcore. Like, he spent a whole summer just, like, grinding Core 10K deck in Anki, like, doing hundreds of reviews a day and stuff like that. And, and he was pretty serious about learning Japanese, and, you know, he had seen all all he was a computer science major and had had all you know a lot seen a lot of the tools and things like that available so he was definitely like on an on the next level compared to most the other people there and so yeah we became pretty good friends and i mean now since the pandemic we haven't haven't like seen each other but we're definitely still friends i I think i think of each other's friends and uh (laughs) yeah so i guess just just that one really yeah and how I guess now during the pandemic, it's like kind of difficult for a lot of people just because they can't really do their usual routines. So I was going to say, how do you think your community has kind of helped you kind of adapt to the situation, kind of feel at home more? Yeah, well, I mean, my work is entirely online. So honestly, my life didn't change when the pandemic started because I mean, my work stayed completely uh, the same as always. And in a way, I think there's more people on the internet, more people on YouTube. And so in a way, it's actually helped MIA because more people are uh, in a position where they're more likely to, to discover my content and things like that. And there's more people at home, like participating in the communities and, and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think just being focused on my work definitely helped me not be too affected, like emotionally or just physically uh, by the by the pandemic and I mean, I'm so used to it now. Like, I still oftentimes forget to bring a mask when I leave my house. But, like, for the most part, you know, it feels like it's been so long at this point. It feels so normal. Did you have any plans to travel to Japan, like, maybe before the pandemic or maybe after? I I didn't. But if I – I probably would be making plans right now if there – if that that would – if that – 
was an option, you know, like it's not an option. So I can't, but I, I feel like if the pandemic ever happened around now, I would be thinking more about planning that because now there's a lot of opportunities to collaborate with other YouTubers in Japan and things like that. And so like, yeah, I, I like back then there wasn't, but, but now I think it would be cool. Like be cool to, to meet a, a bunch of the people who I've connected with online in person and things like that. Yeah. So, um, going off of that, like, have you already reached out to any other Japanese YouTubers where you kind of made, you're like, Oh, it's, this is going to happen. Like, cause you talk, you've talked, you already collaborated with Dogen and I, I can, I already know the real life version is going to be even better, but do you have any, I guess, have you already reached out? Well, so I filmed an interview with this uh, guy named Nick a couple weeks ago. Oh, yeah. If you guys saw that. So, like, yeah. So he is, like, on Japanese TV a lot. And he's a, a comedian in Japan. And so um, definitely be cool to connect with him in person. I th- and I feel like he has a lot of connections, too. That, uh, I mean, sounds kind of weird to say. But, I mean, someone who who I kind of have my eye on right now is this guy called Atsuego. I don't know if you guys have seen that. He's, yeah. like, a, a Japanese guy who makes videos about learning English. And he has a pretty big following. And Nick's in a lot of his videos. So I, I know they must be in, like, pretty close contact. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping that Nick will, like, introduce me to him. And I can... Because in a way, he kind of seems like the Japanese version of me. Because he also has, like, studied English very intensively. And, like, cares a lot about trying to sound like a native speaker and, and things like that. I mean doesn't really seem like he understands immersion and it seems like he's like super into getting high scores on like English tests. So in a way he's not the Japanese me, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, but I, I mean, I don't, well, I mean, I think collaborating with him would be good for like introducing Japanese people to my content, but I also, yeah, just, I definitely want to start, you know, making more Japanese content and and connecting with more Japanese people in that sphere. So. Do you feel like you ever want to join the entertainment industry in Japan or even be like a famous person in Japan? Well, like in the past couple of months, you know, my YouTube channel has seen a lot of growth and I'm definitely not a famous person. But what I've kind of like what I've started to experience is that there's I, I've like gotten in contact with people who otherwise I never would have been able to get in contact with, you know, like Dogen being an example and, and like other other people as well. And so. I see now that that's the real power of having an online following is like if you actually try to reach out to somebody, it's really likely that they'll, you know, see that and respond. And so you have uh, access to to a, uh, a lot more people and resources than you would have otherwise. And that that is really cool. So, I mean, I don't really have a desire to be famous just for like so that I think it would be cool to like get recognized on the street. But I do see like, oh, there is power in having an online following and that does give you access to things that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. So I think it would be cool to have some of that in Japan as well. Like probably the ideal amount of fame is like a hundred thousand followers, like a hundred thousand followers, a hundred thousand subscribers on YouTube, because at that point you have some serious influence and a serious following, but you're not so famous that you can't have a personal life, you know, where it's like really getting in the way of you. Cause you, it's like, you don't get recognized too often in person and, and things like that. So feel like having that size of, of, of following just within Japan would, would be pretty cool just because it would allow me to connect with, with like, like, I like that idea of like, Hey, if I find a cool Japanese YouTuber and I want to collab with him or I want to like get to know him, like I can, because when I reach out, he's going to respond because I am I following? Like, I think that's really cool. That's a, that is a, a, a cool type of power. So I think it'd be cool to build up a following within Japan. I don't think I would want to like 
become a traditional Japanese celebrity or go through that the kind of industrial celebrity complex with, within Japan. Because first of all, I think that whole thing is kind of on the way out. Like Japanese TV is getting less and less popular within Japan. YouTube's getting more popular. And basically, it's the same trend that's been happening in the US, but they're just kind of like five, 10 years behind, basically. <laughs> and so like, I feel like it's kind of like a little late to be getting into that now to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to join an agency and like be on Japanese TV or and stuff like that. So I, I more think of it as like, yeah, it'll be cool. At some point, I definitely want to just like maybe start another YouTube channel that targets Japanese people specifically, make content about how to learn languages in Japanese. And it'd be cool to build up some kind of following so that, you know, if I was in Japan, then I could connect with, with people who I wouldn't be able to connect with otherwise. I see. And now moving back a little bit to school. And we, we talked a lot about, I guess, Japanese and the idea of, I guess, media, the people, but one thing that doesn't really get talked about is, like, I guess, Japanese classes, and I know you've mentioned several times how much of, like, a joke it was, but (laughs) was there anything that you, like, saw or heard within those classes that was, like, so surprising to you that you're like, wow, is this really happening right now? Well, the thing that's coming to mind uh, right now is, like, so basically, when I when I went to University of Oregon, I was a transfer student because basically I studied abroad in Japan when I was in high school for six months, but I didn't any didn't get any school credits during that time. So when I came back, I was basically close to a year behind my peers. So rather than being going to high school and being one year older than everyone else in my grade, I finished high school at community college, and the credits that I got at community college. Uh, that were going towards finishing high school also worked uh, as college credits. So I went to community college for like two or three years, and then I transferred to a four-year college as a, like a sophomore, essentially, I guess. Uh, and so I, I took a placement test. And they, they, like, in hindsight, at the time, I thought I was better at Japanese than I really was. Because, like, remembering back, like, I'm way better at Japanese now than I was right at that point in time. But at that point in time, I thought I was pretty much like a god. So, like, I, I, I remember going going to the test, going to the interview, being like, there's no point in this because there's no way that they're going to have a class on my level. Like, they're just, like, I was basically expecting them to tell tell me that, like, oh, sorry, you're too good. Like, we can't, <laughs> we can't do anything for you. <laughs> but, uh... And, and I think I, I did really well on the, on the like written test, but then there was an interview test where I was actually I had to speak one on one with a, a Japanese woman, and I remember that that woman was like, she could sense that I was cocky, and she really hated that, and she was like, I need to make this kid like learn his place, and so she definitely was like purposely like acting not impressed at all. She's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. Okay, you know some Japanese. Okay, um, okay, yeah, you're gonna go into the fourth year class. Like, yep, uh, you're. I think you're gonna. You're fourth year class level. And I remember being like really shocked of like, how is this possible? Like, you have a class my level, and and I was like, okay, whatever. And it was interesting because I actually thought that I was gonna study psychology because, like I said, I thought they were gonna have no Japanese classes for me. So I was like, yeah, I'm gonna study psychology. And so then, right at that moment, I'm like, okay, I guess I'm studying Japanese now. And in a way, it was cool because it was like, well, I'm it kind of sounds fun. Like, I bet it'll be really good. Like, it'll be really easy. It, it kind of sounded like, I didn't think it actually helped me, but it did kind of sound fun. So I was like, okay, this is a unexpected twist. And I, I went into the class and there was two different types of people in the class. One of them were basically half, like either half Japanese people or 
ethnically full, like fully ethnically Japanese people, but they were born and raised in the U.S. And these people had basically like gone to Japanese Saturday school since the time they were like in elementary school to like learn kanji and like learn Japanese math and things like that. And so that was one category of people. And then the other category of people were like graduate students who had basically been studying Japanese within the college system for like six, seven years. So they took like four years of undergraduate Japanese and then like as a graduate student, another year of Japanese. And then they, they like finally reached that point and they did not know Japanese at all. Like they were abysmal. And I remember like, like there were like in, in a way, um, some of the kids who were like half Japanese or like, or like fully Japanese were like probably overall, I'd say they were like more conversationally fluent than me. I knew more words than them. Cause I just like read more. Not like I was way better at kanji and just like technical knowledge. Cause I had done way more study than they had, like reading novels and making Anki cards and stuff like that. So I was better than them at like performing in the class. But overall, some of them were like more fluent than me. And also some of them had like pretty much perfect accents. So there, that was obviously something I, that like I couldn't compete with. But overall, you know, we were like around a similar type of, of uh, area in terms of ability. But then those graduate students who were like, you know, in their like, some of them, they're like late 20s, like who had just been doing nothing but studying Japanese in the school system for like years. And they could not speak Japanese for shit. <laughs> and I remember like there was this one girl who like literally was like doing like I have a couple videos on my channel where I like dub over anime, but I purposely do like the worst like gaiji and Japanese accent possible. There's like a there was a girl who like literally she just spoke like that like unironically like her, her, her like like the R sounds were just like like she would say like arigato like literally and I and it was like I was like what it was like puzzling and there'd be times where like we would have to like read a text out loud and we would like go around every person would like read a paragraph and then she was just like like couldn't read any of the kanji would be constantly fumbling like like. Kono hito no nihongo, and it was just like, and and like there was lots of times where like the teacher would ask her a question, she would do, clearly just have no idea what 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 was being asked, and and it was like really hard to watch, and so I, it was just so clear, I was like, man, this is like the epitome of the failure of the Japanese school system, like you know, six plus years of Japanese classes of like intensive college level Japanese classes at this university that supposedly has a strong Japanese program just completely garbage at Japanese. And so, I mean, yeah, that like kind of stands out. I mean, the content of the classes, it was like, it, it wasn't awful. It, it felt kind of contrived and corny. Like, like we would read, like, I remember we, we read the first chapter of Norwegian Wood by Murakami Haruki in Japanese. And it's like, she gave us like the first chapter, like printed out on like copy um, like photocopied paper and then she also gave us like a vocab list of like all the words and like the English translation of the words she thought that we wouldn't know and then we would like do little exercises like discussing what some of the text meant and stuff like that so it just kind of felt like okay at this point we should just be taking a class that like in Japanese like w instead of just taking Japanese class it should just be like okay we're taking literature class and it's in Japanese but instead, it was, like, trying to still just maintain this structure of, like, okay, it's Japanese class, so we're going to have vocab lists, and we're going to have kanji tests, and shit like this, even though it, it, it just felt so contrived and forced, because it's, like, we were already at such a high level. So, a lot of times, it just felt, like, really corny, and, I, and like, it was, it was kind of, like, I, I felt like I wanted to rebel certain times, so I'd, like, you know, I'd, like, nitpick the teacher on things, <laughs> and I'd be, like, 
you know, well, technically, I don't, I don't, I don't, doesn't this also technically mean this or like, you know, like little things like that. And, and I remember like, I, I went through a phase where I got into like the, the like traditional forms of the kanji, like the pre-World War II forms of the kanji, Kyujitai. And like, I actually filled out some of the kanji quizzes in like the pre-World War II kanji. And I remember like, I actually have a picture of it still, uh, where like she marked me wrong because she didn't know it. And then I had to go to her and be like, no, 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 this is actually correct. This is the pre, like the historic form of this kanji. And she's like, okay, fine. She gave me the point back, like <laughs> on that thing. In hindsight, that was so cringy that I did that. That's like, like stereotypical Chuni Bio, like <laughs> type stuff. Uh, but. But yeah, like I, there was two different teachers. One of them like liked me because she saw that I was very passionate about the Japanese language. And one of them h- hated me because I was way too cocky. And she would she would always try to like nitpick me. And it was kind of like we, we almost were like had this, uh you know, like competitive type of relationship. But it was fun. So overall, it was a good time, even though like I still think that the idea of having that type of Japanese class at that level is just a waste of time and money. Were there any other times you trolled that teacher you were getting at odds with? Well, I remember a specific moment where we were learning about Buddhism and there was like a slideshow and there was like the word bosatsu, which is it means um bodhisattva if bodhisattva if you know about uh anything about Buddhism. And I knew that word just I don't remember how I learned it, probably when I was reading about Japanese history or something that came up. And she asked the class, like just habitually, like because she's, you know, she has all these teacher habits. So one of her teacher habits is like, anyone know how to read this? And she asked the class, anyone know how to read this? And I raised my hand and like, bosatsu. And she literally, and she literally was like, how'd you know that? <laughs> and like, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I remember that moment like stuck out to me. I'm like, well, you asked, like, why'd you ask if you thought we weren't going to know? Like, <laughs> she went and checkmated herself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Were there classes, like, above that level at that class, like, for, maybe for the master students? Well, actually, yeah, there there was one class where it was actually, like, it was a Japanese literature class that was just taught in Japanese. And so, like, those two Japanese classes I was just talking about were actually, the, the teachers were native Japanese speakers. But there was this other class where, um, at, at the time, this um, book, this really popular book had come out called um, Hibana by Mata Yoshinaoki. And he was actually, he's a, he's a manzai, um, like comedian in Japan and he wrote a a novel. And so it was, and then that novel won the Octagawa prize, which is like the most prestigious literary prize for new authors in Japan. And so it was a really big deal at the time because it was like a comedian wrote a, wrote a novel. It was his first novel and it won this really prestigious prize. And and the novel was actually about, um, a manzai group, like um, who was like, you know, having some success but not enough success and they're kind of in this in this point in their life where they're like what do we do do we keep trying to like make it big or you know do we call it quits and go get like a job that can help us support our family and and so there was a whole class where we we just read that the the entirety of that novel throughout the course and then like discussed it and like also read other things that like are related to it peripherally and things like that and that class was actually taught by um uh I want to say gaijin, but it was in America, so it feels weird to say that. But, yeah, like an American guy, uh-huh. and and also I, I, I he was a he was a good teacher overall. Like I, I liked him. Um, he I, I also took a translation class that he taught, and he actually studied under Jay Rubin at Harvard. And Jay Rubin is is like Murakami Haruki's main translator, and so 
he was and and he had actually translated some japanese novels into english and you, you could like find them on amazon so it's like he had like done some real stuff but i i remember there being a couple times in the translation class where there was like some kanji that he couldn't read that like i could read and i and i remember just being shocked like i remember one of them was like himatsu meaning like um like little like actually the the way i hear it all the time now because they talk about himatsu kansen meaning meaning like you you uh, you get the coronavirus through spit that comes out of people's mouth. So it basically means like little, little tiny drops of liquid. And they, now it's used in terms of like spit when you're talking. Um, like, is it, is it, can it be con- like an airborne, can it be contagious through being airborne? That's like how they use it now. But anyway, I remember that came up in a book and like he couldn't read that kanji. And I, and I remember being like, whoa, <laughs> you like, you have like a PhD in Japanese and you like, and he like studied Edo, Edo period literature as his, as like his main area of research. I'm like, you you have like translated novels into Japanese. You like teaching classes in Japanese. I was saying you can't read Himatsu. Like, I guess that's what happens. You don't use Anki. Like, that, was like, that was like what I thought at the time. And so, uh, and the other thing is that like overall his accent was pretty bad. Like he he, he wasn't as bad as that one girl I mentioned before. But he still had a little bit of like a ah so this name ah ma like that kind of kind of vibe and uh like the actual words that he used were like totally natural and so like if you took his tr- like a transcript of what he wrote and just put it into paper like it would be like totally like really high level natural japanese and like proper japanese but pronunciation was pretty bad and i i think this is because i mean he learned japanese in probably like the 70s or the 80s or something where he didn't have a lot of access to to resources you know he didn't have the internet he didn't have an mp3 player he didn't have youtube or anime to like easily access and so i i think when you take into account the fact that he was like compared to what the resources we have today he had like nothing to work off of like he probably just had like super crappy textbooks and then just went to Japan and had to just like wing it and just like figure it out. Like, because I think he had lived in Japan for a while. So given that, it's kind of like, well, you got pretty dang good given what resources you had available to you. So I had a lot of respect for him for that, even though there was still part of me that was like, I literally know more words than you. I've only been studying for like five years. So <laughs> like, you should probably use on or something. Like I had that, like, that like thought. But, uh, but yeah, so like he, he, he taught that class in Japanese and there were some actual Japanese, like a like one or two Japanese natives who were in that class, taking the class. And then, um, and then there was also like some, uh, one, some two or three, there was only like eight people in the class total, I think. So like one or two were Jap were native Japanese. There was this one Korean girl who was like practically native level in Japanese and who was also a grad student. And then there was, uh, like, yeah, me and another like half Japanese person. And then like one just normal American guy who like was also like boku wa kunichiwa desk level and was completely lost like there were times where the teacher like called on him and he was just like eh, uh boku uh uh wa like it was like literally like like that and he would say uh like as his filler like just the english filler and it was like so painful to listen to uh <laughs> and so like but but overall it was a good classic i remember I actually learned a lot like learned some stuff about japanese poetry and, and like stuff like that so um, it still felt like, like, I was like, ah, oh, I feel like listening to this guy's pronunciation is bad for my Japanese. Like, this might be harmful. Like, I was literally concerned about that. But, like, besides that, it was, like, pretty good class. And, and I definitely, like, have a lot of respect for that teacher. They almost had to go carry headphones to the class. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but Did you ever think about studying abroad or were the classes just, like, too off-putting? Well, actually, I was scheduled to study abroad. I was going to study abroad at Meiji University um, because, actually... 
uh, most of the kids at my school, actually, you were expected to, I think, to study abroad in the Japanese program. So most of the kids did study abroad. And the most popular university to study abroad at was Waseda. But on the Waseda program, the classes were actually in English when you go to Japan. And there was another program where you go to Meiji University, where the classes were actually in Japanese, like with Japanese people. And so Waseda is a more prestigious school. So, you know, all things being equal, I would have rather wanted to go to Waseda. But of course, I wanted to take the classes in Japanese. So I, I you know, I was going to go to Meiji. And actually, I was like doing the paperwork. And I think I'd already gotten accepted into the program and stuff. But then I kind of like had this midlife crisis. Like this was like a little bit before I made the three hour video. And this was the first time I really like realized that I had been using Japanese as a way to try to ground my identity. And I started to be really unsure about like, well, how much of this is just bullshit because I, I'm insecure and how much of this is like actually what I want to do and actually who I am. And so that was when I left college and like took some time off to kind of like find myself, I guess you could say. And, um, and so I was like, I, di I didn't know if I wanted to study at that point. I mean, at that point, I also like was feeling if you watch three hour video, right, I was feeling pretty disillusioned with Japan and with Japanese. And, and I, I think it was kind of like the, the handle, as they would say in Japanese, the like, um, like, because I had, you know, what I realized is that I, I was invested in Japan being amazing. Because I was, I had invested so much time and energy into Japan, I wanted Japan to be awesome. Because if I invested like all this time into Japan, and it turns out that Japan kind of wasn't that great, that was going to be really bad news. And so I would like subconsciously try to convince myself that Japan was awesome. So like, whenever I saw something I didn't like about Japan, I would say, oh, like, that's just that person's fault. But when I saw something I liked about Japan, like if I saw like, 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 I should say it this way. If there was a Japanese person who I didn't like, I would say, oh, that person sucks. If there was a Japanese person I liked, I'd say, Japanese people are awesome. And it was everything like that. And so I saw bad, if I saw a bad Japanese movie, oh, that movie sucked. If I saw a good Japanese movie, oh, Japanese movies are awesome. So I would like, basically through doing this, just, cr I created this worldview where like Japan was just amazing in, in every way. And so once I kind of snapped out of that and I started to become aware of what I was doing, then it was like, it was like the pendulum swung to the other side and it was suddenly like I just took off these rose-colored glasses and it was like oh what a lot of this is actually like not very it's kind of garbage like a lot of the stuff is garbage actually like a lot of the movies that I liked and I mean in hindsight a lot of it uh I was almost just as unfair in that period I was almost doing the opposite right I was almost like wanting to hate it just because like I wanted to be certain of how I felt and so it was just easy it's like now that I wasn't certain that I liked it I wanted to be certain that I hated it because the most uncomfortable thing was just not not knowing and being uncertain about how I felt about it. So I think that was like why I was like kind of in a way trying to hate it. Plus, I just had that resentment of like it felt like, you know, I was a loser in high school. I went to Japan because I thought that was going to be the key to my social success. And then I failed even in, 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 in the realm of Japanese people because they didn't accept me as being Japanese. And so definitely just had that saltiness. And that was a big component of it as well. And so yeah, I decided like, well, I definitely am not ready to go study abroad now. And so I left, you know, college, took some time off and then ended up just starting uh, my YouTube channel. And then that kind of just led me to where I am now. So, so yeah, I guess it just kind of never really worked out. I mean, if I was still in college now, I would want to, but I'm not in college. I'm probably, probably not going to end up going back just because I don't really see the point at this, this point. I see. I see. You also talked a lot about your personal struggles as well as your personal growth. 
in terms of your identity, right? So would you say at this point right now, do you feel content with yourself and your identity? Um. Hey, hope you guys enjoyed part one of our conversation with Matt versus Japan. Part two should be out in a couple of days, so make sure to subscribe and stay tuned to catch it. Like we said earlier, in part two, we talk about sort of the future for the mass immersion approach, where he wants to take it and the little things that he learned along the way, not just strictly related to language learning. And if you're interested in more content like this, where we interview people who have a background in Japanese or you're just interested in Japanese culture, just please consider subscribing to us on YouTube and following us on iTunes Podcast or Spotify Podcast. I want to thank you for making it this far into the podcast. Um, this was a particularly long conversation, so that's why we're cutting it into two parts. But I think you guys really like part two of our conversation with Maverick Japan because we really talk about what the mass immersion approach is and his experience in building a business. We ask a lot of questions that he hasn't really answered anywhere else in any other interview. So if you're a fan of Maverick Japan, make sure to check that out. Thank you guys for listening.